I'm John, and tonight I want answers about Christopher Ward. Really? I'm John Thompson. I'm John A. Vink. I'm Keith Statenfield. I'm Loretta Beavers. I'm A.J. Minnick. I'm Jennifer Sim. I'm Jim Tu. I'm Bobby Chastain. These stories tonight on John Wants Answers. John Wants Answers. Give John Answers. John Wants Answers. Give John Answers now. All right, today I'm very excited. I have on the show Christopher Ward. Now, Christopher Ward is a songwriter, musician, author, television presenter, and podcast host. Woohoo! Hi, Christopher, and welcome to the show. Hello, John. Thank you for having me. Now, of all those titles I listed, which one do you identify with the most? Depends which day it is. On Thursdays, I'm a songwriter. Uh, Fridays, I kind of slip into being a television guest occasionally. Yeah, it's hard to say. <laughs> now, most Canadians of my generation will recognize you as one of the first, well, the first VJ on Much Music. And then my American friends ask me, what's Much Music? And I guess <laughs> the very simple answer yeah. would be the Canadian MTV. Yeah. Like, how would you contrast MTV and Much Music? They were considering that they sort of sprang from the same notion. I mean, they're actually pretty dramatically different animals. Um, MTV, when it started, was pretty buttoned down. You know, it was just like a host in a little box, kind of all the throws were pre-recorded and, you know, they, then they assembled the shows afterwards. Much was loose and live and wacky and totally seat of the pants television. And it was kind of like watching improv comedy where you know that people are gonna screw up and that it's all gonna fall apart, but that's the fun. Right. That's, that, that's sort of the spirit of much. Um, you wrote a book about it and I have it right here. Is ah. it live? And I guess the answer is yes. Much music was pretty much live <laughs> the whole time. Um, this is a fascinating book. Um, Thank especially you. for someone like me who lived through the much music years um talks about the start of the station you know how it came along um the shows the the other vjs the guests you had on the artists really really great book <laughs> thank you very much you know i should one thing um you credited me with being canada's first vj which is more or less true but there were actually two of us the other one was a gentleman who went by the time, at the time, by the name of J.D. Roberts, whose name is John Roberts. He's not on the Supreme Court. I would clarify that. But he is the uh, White House, um, what is he called? Chief Correspondent, I think, for Fox News. So you will see John in the scrum uh, asking questions of Donald Trump when he gets an opportunity. So. Now for a he, period of like six months, it was just you and J.D. Roberts were the only- That was it. It was, it was pretty exhausting, but I think, you know, we were running on pure, you know, caffeine and adrenaline at that point because it was so brand new and exciting and mm -hmm. yeah, it was live every day. And so how many hours did you work or were you on air a day in that time? <laughs> I think it was, I think we were doing four hour shifts in those days. So together we do eight hours and then it would be repeated three times, so. Now even before Much Music started, you were working on, I guess, the prototype for Much Music, a show called City Limits. Yeah, it was um, an all night video show. Um, went from midnight till six in the morning on the weekends. And then and it was exactly set up that way that they wanted it to be a prototype because in Canada, you have to do this big presentation before the Canadian Radio Television Commission in order to try to get a license for a cable channel and all that. And they, they knew that they needed to have it all pretty buttoned down and that was their way of doing so. So we didn't know that at the time, but that's what they were doing, but yeah. Oh, so you got almost tricked into it. Pretty much, yeah, I was, I was duped for my entire career, John. <laughs> it was kind of like how, I, how you got me to do this show, right? 
Pretty much, yeah. You said there'd be candy, and I, you know, I, I fell for it. <laughs> it's, it's in the mail. Um, <laughs> so City Limits is also like a live show. And yes, as live as you could ever get. Live, and, and you played music and, videos? Yeah, we played music videos, and um, I had just finished uh, a stretch at Second City, the comedy troupe. Mm -hmm. And so my friends who were in the company with me in the Second City Touring Company would come down and do wacky bits on my show, which was great because I needed all the help I could get. Right. Filling six hours, you know, a night sounds like a big task. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of music videos, but what happened is inevitably um, we got bored and then it was like, well, what can we do tonight? just to completely mess with this. We'd like, well, we could go on the roof, well, we could go in the street, well, you know. Yeah, so mm -hmm. we just did whatever came up. I guess near the end, like around 5 a.m., you have to be wondering if anyone's watching. <laughs> no, we were pretty convinced that nobody was watching at that point, which actually, unfortunately, gave us license to do even stupider things than we normally would. Now, uh, the great thing about City Limits, legendary, is um, it's the start of, uh, Wayne Campbell, the character from Mike Myers, you know, Wayne, Wayne's World, right? Yeah, Mike and I were in Second City together, and he had done the Wayne character on stage uh, at Second City. And so I said, you got to do Wayne, come down to the show. So he played my cousin Wayne, who would be the great interrupter. He would come in and mess with the show and he'd come in in the middle of interviews and just totally screw with people. And yeah, it was fantastic. Um, now, after much music started, did City Limits continue to go on? There was a version of it. Yeah, it sort of became the alternative show at much. So it was the name was maintained, but it was quite a different animal at that point. Much music when it started. Um, well, had, there's a rule in Canada for broadcasters called CanCon. Now, what is CanCon? <laughs> this must be so bizarre to Americans. It's like, there's a rule that says you have to play Canadian, one-third Canadian music? But why? <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer is this. The, um, you know, American culture looms large in Canada as it does elsewhere around the world. And um, the, uh, the scrappy little upstarts in Canada kind of needed all the help they could get. We didn't really have that much of an industry when I think about it, when much started. Um, you know, there were a few bands that had started to break out. Um, but yeah, it, it really, it depended on that extra little boost of people having to listen to it. Mm -hmm. Much Music did a great job of like promoting Canadian acts and nurturing them uh, through their careers. Um, now that was great for me because I lived in a small town, British Columbia, and the biggest nearest city was Spokane, Washington. Right. So even though we had our own local station, uh, they played like music for our parents. So all the teenagers <laughs> listened to all the radio stations from Spokane. And of course, those would have, you know, no Canadian content on them, unless, you know, they're a big breakout artist like maybe a Brian Adams or something. Yeah. So we uh, were left um, with the videos actually shows was where we got, we got all of our Canadian music from. So CBC had a couple of shows, Good Rockin' Tonight. In right. The but then you had much music, which is playing, you know, music all the time. And I don't think we would have you know, known of a lot of Canadian artists where we lived, unless it was, you know, much music. Well, I think, you know, we kind of took that as our mandate um, because those people, the Canadian artists, I mean, they were, they were our friends. I mean, we, we wanted to boost their careers and we found that we could make a huge difference in a really short period of time. When I count the number of bands that, you know, we started playing their video especially if it was in like a, a fairly high rotation. I mean, I've talked to people like in bands like Glass Tiger and Honeymoon Suite from that era and <clears throat> artists like Jan Arden. And they'll say, you know, my life, my career was one thing. And then the day that Much Music started playing, I 
playing my video, I couldn't go to the grocery store anymore. Mm -hmm. So, but that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Depends who you ask. <clears throat> now, I remember um, I had moved to Toronto at this point, and uh, Bare Naked Ladies, um, yeah. they broke out, from what I can tell, for two different reasons. One was they were scheduled to appear at a concert in front of City Hall, and the city of Toronto threw them off the lineup, saying your name, Bernicke Ladies, is too offensive. We wow. And so there was a big uproar over that. Oh. But the other thing that made them break was they all packed into Speaker's Corner and yeah. basically performed a music video. Now, for those who don't know what Speaker's Corner is, um, what can you tell us about that? Well, imagine that it's like a recording studio in a phone booth. Mm -hmm. So you go in and you put in a dollar or a loony, as we refer to it in Canada. Uh -huh. And then you, you have, I think, is it 60 seconds or 90 seconds to record whatever you want to record. And it was free and it was open all the time. And just everybody and their mother would go in. I mean, half the time it was, you know, people who were drunk or <laughs> people who were complaining about, you know, parking restrictions or whatever but bars on queen street which would you know bring in the the drunk people <laughs> yeah there was there's plenty of opportunities for drunk people to be on speaker's corner but in this case what the ladies did which was fantastic is they had a gig coming up and it was their biggest gig to date it was at a pretty large venue for them and they were like well what are we going to do to promote this thing how are we going to get like a pretty good audience so they wrote a song that captured the details of the gig. It literally said, you know, the Bare Naked Ladies is playing at such and such a venue on such and such a date at such and such a time, and here's the price of a ticket. And, and they fit it all in, they made it rhyme. And then what happened is that the producers had much saw it and went, this is fantastic, and started playing it all the time. <laughs> so they had, they had a full house, and it literally was kind of the beginnings of their career. Did they also do like a version of Be My Yoga Ono, I think? Oh, maybe. I don't, I, you know what, John? I don't know about that. Probably. Did Much Music end up producing like some of their first music videos? Um, Much Music never produced music videos. Um, I'm sure there were occasions when Much had shot concert footage of artists and they used that footage uh in order to incorporate it into a video uh, there was a fund and it was called factor and it was the fund to assist canadian talent on record Whew, how about that huh? and there was a video version of it called video fact and i think what happened is people would make submissions like bands would make submissions to this fund and then there would be like a meeting and all these people would get together who were in the music industry and they would look at all these proposals and then they would go well we really like this one and this one and they would fund them and that would help people get their first videos going pretty pretty cool idea but again it springs from that same thing of the canadian music industry and the video industry correctly feeling like well, we got to help these little local artists here because they're not going to be able to do it on their own. Right. Now, you yourself are a musician. Uh, and you had like three albums. Um, do you ever uh, play one of your videos on Much Music? I, you know, there was one that got played. It was a little weird, but uh, yeah, it did get played. It was called uh, Boys and Girls. Well, if you keep looking at this monitor right here, you're going to see it appear at some point. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All um, right. I guess congratulations. I well, how did it look? It looked about as good as you remember it. <laughs> I remember what, what, what a slippery answer that was, John. I got to say, that was nicely done. Yeah, well played. <laughs> um, but congratulations are in order because you were nominated um, for 1987 Juno for that, Most Promising Male Vocalist. Well, that's kind of a belated congratulations, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Get with the program, it's like 37 years ago. <laughs> I haven't seen you since then. Well, there you go. 
<laughs> well, I'm going to make another record. Oh, good. I know. It just, it's um, Ward's folly to be thinking about making a record in this day and age um, because, you know, people don't buy vinyl. But I'm think, I think maybe I'll just do it like vinyl and, um, you know, just make like 200 copies of it, limited edition, give it to my friends and mm -hmm. call it a day. But I'm going to do that starting next week. That's why I'm in Toronto. So you have uh, three albums out in the past. Are those available anywhere to purchase? If you haunt some of the more obscure secondhand record stores, like mm -hmm. third-hand, fourth-hand record stores, yeah. you might find a copy. Okay, but there's no nothing uh, <clears throat> on uh, iTunes or Spotify? No, no. And, and Warner never digitized it or, or the other stuff, so no. It hardly exists at all at this point. Well, I did find some of the songs from Spark of Desire on YouTube. So if, if you search on YouTube. Great. I mean, when you can't find anything anywhere else, you go, oh, just check on YouTube. And sure enough, four hours later, you're, you know, you've lost your entire evening, right? <laughs> right. Much music, it's not really still around today anymore, is it? Yes, it is. Um, I have to confess i haven't watched it for a while because i i live in california mm -hmm. but um it's a it's a different thing than it used to be that's for sure but it still exists now i believe it's called much and they took off the music part and they don't actually <laughs> play music anymore on this station yeah they still have artists on i mean i think and they, you know, I don't know whether they do concerts, but they have the, the Much Music Video Awards every year, which is a pretty big show. Mm -hmm. What do you think contributed to the decline of music video stations? Well, speaking of YouTube, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, people, they used to call it appointment viewing, right? When it, it, like your favorite TV show would come up Thursday at 8 p.m. So that's when you would plunk yourself in front of the TV. And people similarly on Much Music, you know, they'd be waiting for their favorite music video to come on. But now, you know, you can watch whatever you want, whenever you want. So why would you sit and wait for it to happen, right? If you want to see Beyonce's new video, you just go to YouTube or right. Yahoo or wherever you want, and there, there it is. So I think that's it. It's just, I mean, it's an on-demand culture now, which is, mm -hmm. which is different than, than what it used to be. I guess what I would miss then is, um, you know, in the old days, you'd watch much music to, to see new music that you haven't heard before, or just get, you know, exposed yeah. to the various things. Um, and with the on-demand, you don't get that. You know, you, hear, you see the songs you like, and um, you don't get presented with something new. You know, I think actually you just made a really, really good point um, about what is lost in the, um, you know, the evolution, whatever you want to call it, of popular culture. Um, I mean, now, you know, I guess if people want to hear new music, there's recommendations on the streaming services based on what you already like, mm -hmm. you know, so there's an opportunity that way. Is that, is that how you think people mostly hear new music now? Um, if they stop to listen to the radio, maybe. Um, or, yeah, suggestions on, on the online services. Yeah. Which I don't do very often. Like, well, I'll play video on, much music or on YouTube. Yeah. And then there'll be recommendations. And I'll pick a recommendation that I already know, usually. In like, oh, right. Yeah. Like yeah, I mean, I, I, I love listening to new music. I'm pretty, still pretty curious about what's going on. Um, so I will go, you know, it's like every couple of months, <clears throat> I'll have an entire evening of just chasing down rabbit holes of new music. And, you know, you can go to Pitchfork or you can go to, you know, some of the NPR outlets like KCRW in LA has like great suggestions and, you know, you can, if you're really curious and persistent, you can find new music, but you, you kind of have to go looking for it, I think. So I was listening to much music in 1989 in my small town. I discovered an artist named Alana Miles. Yeah. And 
I went out and I bought her a cassette. This is the actual oh, cassette I bought 30 some years ago. Wow. Uh, that's a big deal. That's like $10. So is that how much it was at the time? I think so. So as a teenager, to invest in a whole album was big money. That's yeah. And were you satisfied with your purchase? Very much. So you're not, in other words, you're not coming to me. You're looking for a refund. I'm not looking for a refund. No. Um, so what was great is, you know, I'd be on the bus to get to school. So I take out my Walkman and I take out the Atlanta Miles cassette. And then a girl on the bus would point and be like, that's a good one. So right away I got street cred, or I guess in this case, I would get bus cred. <laughs> <laughs> and I would pop it in and listen to it. Now I got a 20 yeah. bus ride. So what you can't do today, what you could do back then is like read the liner notes. So I remember taking out the little sleeve. Uh, yeah, I miss, I miss the liner notes because I'm a bit of an infomaniac myself. Um, but it sounds like you were using Alana's record to get girls. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that would get me girls. I would have, you know, gotten more of her cassettes. <laughs> I don't know. I think you're maybe craftier about this than you're letting on, John. I'm just, I'm suspicious. Let me put it that way. So I'm reading the liner notes and I'm seeing like the songwriters of all these songs. He's like, you know, C Ward, you know, C Ward. And then I look and it says, executive producer, Christopher Ward. I'm like, hey, that's the guy from Mets Music. You made the connection, yeah. And there's even um, Alana's address in here. I could send her a letter, which I actually think I did once. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever hear back? <laughs> um, I got a response saying, here's an application to join Alana's fan club. I think it's ah. something like that. Which is, you know, definitely better than Better than a kick in the pants, right? Um, and then you got the, the benefit of selling the album twice because you had to buy it on CD later. So yes, that was, that was a good thing. A good time. Now, Americans uh, will all remember Alana Miles from her hit, you know, Black Velvet. It went to number one for a few weeks, and she won a Grammy for best rock performance on that. Yeah. Um, now she's not quite a one-hit wonder because um, "Love Is" hit number thirty-six, so it just cracked the top forty. Okay. So I'd forgotten uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Congratulations on that. Now, um, what I've heard is that another artist, Robin Lee put out Black Velvet as well, like around the same time. Yeah, that was the brainchild of Atlantic Records, um, where Alana was signed. And similarly, Robin Lee was signed to Atlantic in Nashville. And I think they felt like, well, this is a perfect song to also be um, pitched to the country market. So the version that she did, that Robin Lee did, was remarkably similar to Alana's version. I, I think there was maybe a little bit, there's like a grand piano in it or something, but there was, a, there was a couple of little differences in terms of the instrumentation, but otherwise it was kind of letter perfect. And they even kind of copied the video too. It was a little, little weird. I watched the video um, on YouTube and I was amazed, like Robin Lee even looked like Alana in the video. Similar. <laughs> yeah, you can you can classify that as weird for sure. Did she start working on her album before Alana's album came out? Like, how would she have known about oh. the Black Velvet song? Well, I think it was the record company guy pitched it to her and and said, you know, we'll get behind this if you do this version of this song. I mean, it was probably something. Is, I'm I'm assuming I don't know what the you know behind the scenes conversation was, but. Um, because she was signed to the same label. And it came out fairly shortly thereafter. It wasn't, it, it wasn't out before Alana's version by any means, because she wouldn't have heard the song. Mm -hmm. Did uh, Black Velvet become a hit in Canada before it was a hit in the USA? You know what? It was a bigger hit in the US. Bigger hit? <laughs> yeah. The, the first single in Canada was Love Is. You know, we were pretty excited when the album came out and love is and, and then much was playing the video and um i remember the moment when i knew that we really had something going on here 
and it was I was working late at Much Music in one of the um, editing rooms, working on some special or something. And I came out, you know, at like two in the morning or whatever. So the bars were letting out or had already let out. And there was a guy rolling down Queen Street in front of Much, loaded, <laughs> just plastered, like barely able to keep his balance, singing Love Is at the top of his lungs. And I remember thinking, damn, that's it. This is our moment. This is how we know that we've made that connection. You know? I mean, I'm sort of joking, but not really. It was, it was kind of strangely, it was a powerful moment. That song, that's a great song. It's a real earworm. Like once you hear it, you can't get it out of your head for a while. <laughs> Thank you, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> notice that Black Velvet was a great song. But it wasn't the best. <laughs> There's even better songs on here. Oh. Um, so as I said, Love Is, that's a great song. Yeah. Um, there's a song here called Lover of Mine. Ah, yes. And oh my God, Christopher, this is one of the best things I've ever heard. So it's, it's beautiful music. And then combined with Alana's performance, like the emotion you can hear in her voice. Her vocal on that, I mean, how many times have I heard it over the years? And it just, it's still, when I hear it now, it kills me. I mean, she tapped into something, as you say, emotionally, like really, really deep with that song. Um, yeah. I, it was too bad that it was never uh, a single internationally. It would have, I think it would have been quite successful. I think it was a, a top 40 hit in Canada, right? Yes, it did. Yes, it did come out in Canada. And there was a beautiful video. Did you ever see the video for it? It was shot in Ireland. And it was, I mean, just this stunningly beautiful setting. And there was a huge storm coming up too. And so she's got this coat that's flapping along behind hear, her. It'll, it'll come up. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Well, if people are able to see that screen, I encourage them to <laughs> look closely. Now, yeah. in 1990, um, you won Composer of the Year uh, Juno Award, you and uh, David Tyson. Mm -hmm. Now, is that awarded for a particular song or for songwriting in general for that year? You know, I can't remember whether they listed which songs that it was for. I mean, it was clearly for all the songs on Alana's record. Mm -hmm. But I don't, you know what, honestly, John, I can't remember if they named certain ones, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it was, you know what, it was a fantastic honor to receive that. I mean, when you're a songwriter, that's, that's the big award. That's the one that really, really matters. Right. Yeah. Um, so Alana Miles had uh, nine top 40 hits in Canada. Now one of them, <laughs> was a little song called Sunny Say You Will. Oh, yeah. A cover song of a Christopher Ward song that came out in 81. Is that right? Yes. Yes, this is, this is all true. <laughs> I, can't, Listen, I can't deny any of it. Uh, it's funny. She, she always loved that song. I think in many ways that was her favorite song that I ever wrote. And... Um, yeah, so when she had a chance to record it, she did. I haven't been able to find this song, track it down yet. But if I go online to find a, a record, maybe I can. You find what, the my version of it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'll send it to you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no problem. There's been other Canadian artists who are very successful in Canada and maybe only have one hit in America. So like I'm thinking of Jan Arden you know, very successful in Canada and just had the one hit, you know, insensitive in America. Yep. Now, what do you attribute that to? Why do you think there are artists who, even after they break it for, you know, one hit in America, it doesn't continue, but in, in their native Canada, still can be successful? Well, I guess I would sort of look at it a little differently. I would say that for everything to line up, the way that it has to, to have a hit record of any description at any time, even once, 
is like a remarkable sort of confluence of factors that just are all working. You know, it's like you've got to be signed to the right label. You've got to have the right production on the song. You've got to have a really good manager who's beating the label up constantly to make sure that they're promoting the thing. And it's timing. It's like, you know, I mean, Black Velvet was far from being a sort of prototypical single at the time. You think about what was going on in those days. It was kind of like the, the quiet riot years. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, Black Velvet was, you know, I mean, it's part, excuse me for name dropping, but this is true. Robert Plant said, he said, oh, Christopher, you know, Black Velvet, it's just a blues song with a chorus, man, you know? And <laughs> like, oh, okay. Um, but he's right. It's a blues song with a chorus. Go figure that that would be a number one song. I mean, I'm obviously clearly delighted that it did. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I'm saying, sort of very long answer to your basic simple question, which is like, the very fact that you can have one hit is a minor miracle. Expecting to have a second or a third is virtually impossible. Yes, there are artists that do. Sure, there's U2 or Coldplay or you know Taylor Swift or whoever you want to name. But you think about it's like the number of people that make it to be you know on the hockey all-star team. It's like there's a there's a pyramid right before you get to the top. And there's all the others down below aspiring for that same thing. And um, so I feel like we were incredibly fortunate to have one hit. And, you know, for me as a writer, it's a calling card that I'll have forever. You know, I'm the guy that wrote that song, which is fantastic. Is that a very long-winded answer, but did it, did it explain it? <laughs> Um, well, I mean, in the case of Lana, I mean, she did have many hits after Black Velvet, you know, in, in Canada. Yes. And I'm wondering why the Canadian hits, if you have an idea of why the Canadian hits didn't translate also to American hits. Well, I mean, Canadians are very proud of their artists, I think. And um, they sort of claim them as being their own. And they will, um, you know, support their careers through ups and downs in a way that um, you can't expect in America because America's on to the next. They're on to the next yeah. new thing. I, I guess that's it. Best answer I have. Now, is it true that you left Mutt's music to pursue being Atlanta's manager full time? Uh, no, <clears throat> I, uh, I was already kind of managing her career. I mean, we were a couple for a long time and, um, you know, I mean, it was the two of us against the world, I guess, for quite a while. Um, she was, as you can imagine, very ambitious, intensely hardworking extremely talented and just she just had that unique combination of ambition and talent that you need and um like she was more focused and intense about things than I was I mean I was very creative and I was always writing songs I mean the joke was that she'd say to me every day you're gonna write me a hit song I know you are and it was like or else, right? It was kind of the feeling like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm, work, I'm working on it, you know? Um, but it took that drive. I mean, that's, those are the people that succeed, that have that, you know, boundless burning ambition in their hearts. Alana's not the only person you wrote for. I picked up this CD, Amanda Marshall. Oh, Amanda, yeah. And there you are, um, one of her hits, Beautiful Goodbye, another beautiful song. Um, <coughs> Thank that you. you wrote. You and I think uh, David Tyson? Yeah, Dave produced that record as well. Yeah, so you and Dave did a lot of good work together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, you know, we're great friends and still to this day. And uh, in fact, <laughs> pursuant to the Atlanta joke, it was my birthday last week and he, he sent me a <laughs> message that said, happy birthday or else. So it was like, 
the joke still continues all these years later. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you find somebody that you collaborate with, where there's a kind of an artistic understanding, it's like when you do what they don't and vice versa, you know, you can, you can find a, a sort of comfortable joining of forces. And that was the case with Dave. He's just such a gifted um, melody writer. And like, for example, with um, Beautiful Goodbye, the Amanda Marshall song, like he had that song, the whole melody and the, the, the track was completely finished when he gave it to me. And I'll be honest with you, I was intimidated by it because it was so beautiful. When he, when he played it for me, I was like, oh my God, how am I gonna, how am I gonna live up to this? Because it, it moved me so much. It took me months to write that damn song months to write the lyric for it but in the end it was worth the time spent i think good job <laughs> yes thank you <laughs> um i'm going to switch gears now and talk about this uh podcast you have going famous yeah. last words um it's a show you do with tom jokic why don't you explain to us what this podcast is well my partner tom is the creator of the show and he produces the morning radio show at a station called Chum FM in Toronto. And it's like, I think it's the number one morning show in the country. I remember when that was Roger Rick in Maryland. Back in well, it's still Maryland. Roger still has Maryland. retired and so has Rick, I believe. But Maryland mm -hmm. is still um, manning it. And she's, uh, she's such a fantastic interviewer. She's amazing. Um, so Tom is an archivist at heart. He just loves digging around and finding stuff. And he was in their archives there. And they, the archives at that station are unbelievable. And they go back to the 1950s, right? They have interviews with I mean, literally everyone from Elvis Presley to Taylor Swift and anyone in between. And he was pulling out these interviews and thinking, I bet people have never heard these. Or if they ever went to air, maybe they went to air once and were never heard again, right? And he, he thought there's got to be a way to make use of this material, it's too good. So he came to me with this idea, <clears throat> said I wanna take these interviews, pull out the best bits, and then we'll just sit and yak about it. And I went, okay, I'm in. As long as you do the archive work, cause I can't do that. He's like, yeah, sure. So that's what we do. Um, and it's really, really fun. I mean, it's two music geeks just carrying on, you know. It's great. I, I watch, I listen to it um, all the time. It's on its fifth season now. Yeah. So a lot of shows. Um, and I think it's fascinating listening to interviews from artists like before they were big. Like you have an interview, let's say, with Beyonce. Now, yeah. today we know she's a huge star, but when you interview <clears throat> yeah. her, she didn't know she's going to be a huge star or not, right? And so it's really fun to get this, you know, different angle. You know what, those, I agree with you, those are the ones that are the most entertaining for me because you do see a glimpse of who they will become. And Beyonce is a great example because, I mean, talk about ambition. I mean, she's like, you know, like I was saying about Atlanta, I mean, Beyonce, she is such a driven person i mean she's she's got a uh, such an incredible standard for her work and um even then you, you hear it in what she said like she was laid back and funny and everything else but you know that this was somebody to be reckoned with somebody who was going to be around for a while and who was going to have their say and clearly she she has um but yeah i mean the probably the goofiest example of somebody before they're a star was the Justin Bieber one. Did you hear that one? Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> because his voice hasn't changed in it yet, right? <laughs> so it's oh, like, good. he's going, yeah, this is really, 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 really fantastic. <laughs> so we did, we did play the really, really, really part, maybe more than once, John. I, <laughs> when, you, when you have something like that, you got to use it, right? So I want to uh, switch gears into songwriting, and a lot of what I've heard you saying on Famous Lost Words um, brought up a lot of the questions I have here. Now, Famous Lost Words, we heard uh, John Cougar Mellencamp 
Now, I guess he was performing a song in concert that he hadn't put on an album yet. And so someone came up to him and said, hey, I want to buy that song. And like, he wouldn't sell the song. And so I'm not sure how this works. Now, I thought the way cover songs work is that anyone can do a cover song without permission of the artist. I mean, they got to pay royalties and all that, but you can't stop, one, stop someone from doing a, a cover song. Now, is it different, I guess, if it hasn't been on a record yet? Well, you just hit the essence of it. Um, <clears throat> if it hasn't been recorded yet, then you need the permission of the writer. And then, if it's already, but if it's already been out, um, you're right, you can, anybody can record it at any time, but they do have to get permission if they want to make any substantial changes in the song. Now, what constitutes in today's day and age a recording? Like if, if you just sang it well, on YouTube, is that considered a recording? Boy, you're asking all the good questions. Um, I, I mean, I guess streaming is the modern day version of it. Um, you know, I don't know how much permission people seek when they put things out on YouTube. I mean, a lot of the time, I think people just do whatever they want and wait to get caught. You know, mm -hmm. kind of like the early sampling days, you know, when people would right. put a sample of a song and then eventually they get caught and they go, oh, okay, we'll give you a share of the royalties or whatever this, whatever the settlement would be. I mean, sometimes they'd get, you know, their butt bitten by that. I mean, look at the verve with, um, you know, um, the, the Rolling Stones lawsuit. They lost all the royalties to that song, you know, Bittersweet Symphony. Oh, really? Oh, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, although eventually, finally, just last year, I think it actually got reversed and now the verve officially collect royalties. But I mean, what they actually borrowed wasn't even part of the song. It was like an orchestral version of Rolling Stone songs that had been put together years ago by their manager, Andrew Rigolden. Sorry if this is getting boring and arcane, but um, for someone who creates copyrights for a living, it's just fascinating stuff, you know? <laughs> Are you familiar with the, uh, the band Negative Land, who did a song that sampled U2 and Casey Kasem? <laughs> outtakes. You two and Casey Kasem? Yes. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a combination. I, I forget the name of the song particularly. It might be just called You Two, the song. It was Negative Land and they had uh, a stone found looking for samples along with Casey Kasem during an outtake swearing at his staff. <laughs> how they? Oh, right. <laughs> I've, heard, I've heard about the Casey Kasem thing. I've never actually heard it, but yeah, it's one of those famous studio tapes. Right. Um, no, I, I, I've never heard that, so. So if I want to record my own cover song, um, it has to be pretty accurate to the original, right? Uh, no, you can, you can record, I guess, what you'd call an interpretation of the song, um, but you can't substantially change it. In other words, if you wanted to put different lyrics to it, that you'd have to get permission for. Um, as far as the melody goes, there's probably a little more room to move there because that could be considered an interpretive thing. Can I leave the out? lyrics? The lyrics is more black and white. They're either the originals or they're not. Can I leave out a verse? Yes, to... I, I think you could probably get away with omission, but mm -hmm. yeah. Can I add in like an oh baby? <laughs> you're 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 angling for something here, aren't you? What, whose song are you going to cover? As long as it's not mine, I'm okay with. No, 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 no. I'm just wondering like how, how <laughs> the rules are and because um, we don't necessarily want to hear karaoke versions of cover songs. Um, hearing, you know, well, you like, see, I don't care. Like there's so many versions of Black Velvet out there that it's kind of, I mean, I don't listen to them. What happens actually, the way I hear them is people send them to me. They'll be like, oh, I can't believe I heard this. And they'll send me, there'll be some wacky version. Um, like I've seen, you know, there was a guy who was played like Black Velvet on solo banjo. I mean, it was just, or, you know, you hear, there was this heavy metal band once called Nailworks. They're probably from Germany, where all great heavy metals from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I remember the, 
I saw the album cover too. What it had was it had pictures of these nails and the head of the nail was um, a photograph of one of the band members. <laughs> it was just like the best, the best, most obscure thing you've ever seen. But the version of the song was like, you know that kind of barfy voice that some of the metal bands do that like double and was that right? But with the double kick drum, the on the kick, and I just remember listening to that, thinking, who would have ever conceived of such a thing as this? I mean, in a way, you kind of have to, you know, tip your hat and go, all right, good, creative. You didn't ask my permission, but sure, you know, that's fine. Do they use the same melody and? Wow, <laughs> it's a little a little dodgy that one, but yeah, I mean, I guess sort of. So I wonder what constitutes what are the elements of, of a song? So I guess you have the lyrics as part of the song. Now the melody does that um, refer to the notes that you sing the lyrics to? Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question because that question, the answer to that question is changing over time. If you go back to the, um, you know, the Tim Pan Alley era, the sort of the classic era of songwriting, um, the song was the lyric and the melody, and that was it. And, you know, if somebody, if Nelson Riddle came in and arranged, um, you know, Night and Day by Cole Porter, for Frank Sinatra, he was the arranger, and then somebody else was the producer, and Frank was the singer. But the writing, that was Cole Porter, that was the words and the music. But now, it's like the track is such a huge component of the success of a pop song that it's equally as important, if not more important at times, so when you say than track, the lyric you mean, or the melody. Like you mean like the the notes that the guitar plays and the keyboard plays the instrumentation yeah yeah i mean you think about the way that popular music is made now it's kind of assembled you know like you're baking a cake and you're putting in all these these ingredients one at a time right and a lot of times it's highly specialized work you'll, you'll get you know somebody will come in and play this one little figure on this keyboard Somebody else will come in and play a little riff on guitar. Somebody else will come in. They'll get singers to come in who will be, you know, doing hooks. And they'll, they'll literally go out into the control room and they'll ad lib for, you know, an hour or something around the melody or the track that's played in their headphones. And then the pro producers will go, okay, thanks. We got everything we need. And then they'll go away and they will have no idea how their work is going to be used. I mean, they, you know, they'll get a credit, of course, as a co-writer based on what they did, but it's all being manipulated by, you know, pop music is producer's music nowadays for mm -hmm. the most part. And how they use all those elements and move them around, um, that's, it's a fine art and I admire it. I can't do it, but, but I admire it. If I want to do a, a cover song, are all the elements properly documented? Like if I, do I have to know how to listen by ear all the notes to make sure that when I make the cover version, I'm getting it accurately? Can I get like sheet music or am well, I on my own? Well, you have to be accurate. That's the beauty of it. You know, there's no requirement that you be accurate, except with the lyric. I don't think you can, I don't believe you can change the lyric without permission. Um, whereas with the music, you, know, you can do a reinterpretation of it. As long as you pay the royalties, mm -hmm. um, you're good to go. Now, an exception, um, famously, is Weird Al Yankovic. He does all of his parodies. And um, he always asks permission, but he also says he doesn't need to ask permission. Um, so is there well, like a I believe he does need to ask permission. I, I mean... Mm -hmm. He's pretty successful for so who am I to say Weird Al is wrong? But I, I believe that he does need, in fact, to, to get that permission. But of course, the thing is that people are so flattered when Weird Al does a parody of one of their songs 
you know, I mean, I would love to hear him do a parody of one of my songs. So I, of course I would give him permission, but that hasn't happened yet. Does that only, um, these rules apply only to recordings? Like if I do in a concert, if I do a song called Red Velvet, am I, is that okay? <laughs> there, is, um, there is a song called Red Velvet actually, <clears throat> but it's uh, by Ian and Sylvia. Um, you can do that, but if you're in fact trading on Black Velvet, then, you know, the copyright police would be waiting outside the stage door for you. <laughs> on Famous Lost Words, uh, there's another great story I heard about a friend of yours who, who you know, called you up and said, hey, hey, Chris, I, I got a rod. <laughs> I guess yeah. meant he, he wrote a song and Rod Stewart was going to record it. Yeah. Um, so my first question is, how do uh, artists and performers like Rod Stewart find songs to, to do? Like how do they find your friend's song? Well, you know what? There's no set of rules on that one. I think it's however, you know, it's like, okay, so is Rod Stewart actively personally looking for songs? Probably not, but I'll bet he has lots of people who are happy to bring him songs. Mm -hmm. I mean, it could be, you know, it could be his A&R guy at his record label. And, and, and in the case of the song you're talking about, you're talking about Rhythm of My Heart. Right. The uh, song that Mark Jordan and John Capek wrote. And Mark is my friend who was on the show as a guest talking about that. Um, and um, yeah, the, the A&R guy for Rod Stewart had known about that song for I think like seven or eight years always loved it, kind of kept it in a drawer, waiting for the right moment, the right artist, the right time. And that moment came along and he gave it to Rod. Rod said, I love this, I want to record it. There's a kind of a second part to that story because it was recorded, I would say like in 1990, maybe 1991, mm -hmm. whenever the first Gulf War was. Right. And, um, the song does have a, a sort of storyline about it that deals with somebody like a soldier. And, and so um, after they'd recorded and it was gonna come out, it was all set to be a single and everything else. Then the Gulf War happened and then they pulled the song and they were like, oh no, we can't release this. Fortunately for, for Mark <laughs> and for Rod, uh, the Gulf War ended rather precipitously, as I recall, mm -hmm. within a few days of the beginning. Yes. Uh, which is good. If the war can end in three or four days, I think everybody benefits. But um, yeah, so the song did come out. It did become a huge hit. And uh, and Rod did a fantastic version of it. I mean, Rod Stewart, you know, he he's, rec he's always recorded really, really interesting good songs, whether it's like, you know, a Robbie Robertson song or uh, I can't think of all the different people he's covered, but they're not obvious covers. You know, uh, so he probably has people kind of curating what he listens to, but maybe, you know, maybe he goes out there, maybe his friends. It's like, if you're friends with Rod, maybe you go, man, I, I was listening to a record. I heard this fantastic song. I just thought I should play it for you. Rod might go, yeah, wow, that is great. I bet I could do an interpretation of that. So, yeah, you never, you never know how a song's going to get to somebody. You just hope that it does. Now, in the case of uh, Rhythm of Your Heart, um, did Rod Stewart make requests that the lyrics get changed or did he end up just using the original lyrics as they were? Um, I think what happened is because of the Gulf War situation, and I'm trying to remember Mark's story, um, they requested changes and Mark said that he just, you know, was kind of panicked because this was such an important career moment for him this this mm -hmm. like th these are kind of make it or break it moments when an artist of that stature records your song and he said he was just banging his head against the wall trying to come up with a new lyric and he said he never came up with anything that he thought was even slightly decent or worthy of presenting to them um i think i would have presented something no matter how good it was mm -hmm. but um and then uh, then finally the 
as I say, the Gulf War ended, and what they did was they recorded the original lyric as it was. Okay. Yeah. So the the team, the Rod Stewart team, couldn't make their own changes. They needed the songwriter to make the change for them. Is that right? Well, that was the route that they took. Yeah. And I think that happened with another one of Mark's songs that uh, Rod recorded, where you know there was there were some lyrics that he went, "Yeah, I can't really sing this comfortably." And you know what? That that's totally cool. I mean. When you, again, with an artist like the statue of a Rod Stewart, or, or even somebody unknown for that matter, every artist has their own vision. They have their own sense of, they have their own comfort level with what they record. And it has to sound believable coming out of their mouth, right? Right. Um, I mean, I've certainly changed things for people. And, you know, some, some like your friends will go, oh, I can't believe you would change that. That's, that's you know. Well, it's not your art. I'm going, art, smart. I wanted to get the cover, you know? Like the, like my attitude, when somebody asked me to change it, is how soon do you need it? That's the question that I ask. Right. And, you know, I don't, I'm, I probably sound like a sellout, but it's more that, you know, when you work with an artist, you want them to feel comfortable and at home singing whatever it is you've written for them. So... And a song is a song, you know, why not change it? They're not, I'm not precious about those things. Now as a songwriter, do you get paid every time the song is on the radio or every time someone plays it on Spotify? In theory. <laughs> um, well, it's like, you know, well, let's say radio play, which is, you know, emblematic of other ways of people hearing music. I think there's some means of keeping track of what gets played on the radio and the information is gathered up and shared with the performing rights societies like ASCAP and BMI. And then they determine what one airplay is worth and then how many airplays, they'll extrapolate from a sample of how many airplays you would get with something and you get paid um, accordingly. Now, I guess today must be harder because 20 years ago, you had like album sales, which don't seem yeah. to exist too much today. Mm -hmm. And that, that was probably a big um, part of a songwriter's income, right? Yeah, because, you know, I mean, streaming services are starting to make up some of the lost revenue, but not completely. Um, I don't know if they will ever pay at the same rate that album sales did um you just have to find other ways of monetizing your work um which again you know sort of speaks in favor of not being precious about something if it's an opportunity and you want to make some dough then you got to go for it i mean so for example for me one of my biggest sources of revenue is what they call syncs s-y-n-c-h which is short for synchronization, which is a very, very old music business term referring to when music and picture are synced together. Okay. So, you know, whether it's um, like a television show or a film usage or something like that, in some cases a commercial, um, you know, your publisher will come to you and say, so, I have this opportunity. You have to decide whether you want to go for it or not. But it's a, it's a real legitimate source of revenue. Now, I guess when Much Music played videos, they wouldn't have to pay sync, would they? Because there's more of a benefit to the artists. You know, that's that's that was an interesting story because at the outset, I don't think the video channels paid anything. Their attitude was like, "Well, hey, we're promoting your artists." You know, we're, like, we're helping you sell millions of records. Why in God's name should we pay? But I think after a certain point, I, I don't know how it was resolved legally, but there came a point where no, Much Music and MTV and any video service had to um, pay for the ability to use the music in a, in a video. Mm. Is there a point in time when copyrights expire and songs go in the public domain? Yes, well, that's the exact term is public domain. Mm. So for example, um, oh, I don't know, just like take a song that's like a hundred years old, you know? 
Uh, it's hundred years, the amount of time it takes for a- It's, you know, it's different in every country. I think in America, it's 75 years after the death of the composer. Oh. So, so you know, the music we've listened to in the last hundred years would be up for a while. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of it. I can't think of a really good example. Coming around the mountain when she comes, I mean, maybe that song is in public domain now. You know, I, yeah. happy birthday. Well, actually, it's funny. I think happy birthday was the example where everybody assumed happy birthday was in public domain. Mm-hmm. And let's face it on a practical level. People who are singing happy birthday at somebody's birthday are not likely to have to pay royalties to do so. Right. <laughs> yeah, that, practically, that's just not going to happen. But um, I think actually, happy birthday, there still is ownership of the copyright. So I remember it became an issue, like starting in the 80s, I think, where restaurants could no longer sing happy birthday to like customers for their first <laughs> birthday. So they made up like weird <laughs> fake birthday songs. And I think in the last, you know, five or 10 years, a judge finally ruled, no, happy birthday, you were unable to prove your copyright, and now it's back in the public again. Oh, what about Baba Black Sheep and, you know, Twinkle Twinkle, I mean. Oh, man, I don't know. <laughs> no. Do you have a favorite song that you have written? Oh, huh. I have a few that, I, that I'm particularly proud of. I mean, I mean um, Beautiful Goodbye. Maybe because it took maybe because it was so hard to write, but I was really happy with the end result. Like I figured, really captured you know a mood. But then I've written songs that very few people have heard that are some of my absolute favorites. Um, I was writing songs for a television show called uh, Instant Star, mm-hmm. which is produced by the same people that produced Degrassi, and. Um, Instant Star was really fun because it was based on the story of a young artist. And at the outset of this, the, uh, the series, she wins a sort of, you know, American Idol type of competition. But then it's like, well, now what? What happens with her life and her career and all the battles that she has to go through subsequent to winning, the, you know, mm-hmm. the big competition? Um, so each episode had a featured song and it had to reflect the theme of that particular episode. So that was a really interesting creative challenge. And um, I think I wrote some of the best music I've ever written for that show. Um, But, you know, maybe if you saw the show, you heard the song and that might be it, right? Are those songs available somewhere for people to listen to now? Yeah, I mean, YouTube has all of it. Um, the, the artist's name is Alex, with a Z on the end, Johnson. Uh, I don't, she, she had a career of sorts. I don't know how much success she's had. She's a fantastic singer, um, very gifted singer. What's a song of hers yeah. that we should check out? Um, my favorite, which I wrote, of course, is mm-hmm. called 2 a.m. So 2 a.m. by Alex Johnson, yeah. Or you could Google Instant Star, and I'm sure you all of it, because they did full videos for these songs. So, you know, you'll, it, it, there's a whole performance that you can see. So let, let me ask you, what are you doing uh, now? I'm drinking a glass of water <laughs> <laughs> um, in my vineyard in Alsace. Well, like I mentioned to you, I am going to uh, make an album. Uh, I just, I've had this really incredible creative outburst as a songwriter within the last year or so. And um, I just decided that I really, I needed to do it. I, I had these songs in me and I was really happy with them, proud of them. And although it's not the coolest thing in the world to do to make a record, I don't really care. Uh, I've got a bunch of fantastic musicians and a wonderful uh, recording studio I'm working in called the Orange Lounge. Have you heard of it? I've not heard of that one, no. Yeah, they, well, the reason I asked is they had a series called Live from the Orange Lounge, and they had everybody on there, like Katy Perry, Drake, and everyone was on that show. And it's just a beautiful recording studio. And So we're just going to go in and cut it live off the floor. And um, yeah, so 
that's my big creative passionate pursuit right now i hope and you make sure it's uh on spotify and itunes and all the rest i will endeavor <laughs> to make sure uh, but thank you for uh, reminding me john um, so where can our viewers go to learn more about you and what you're doing? Well, I have a website, ChristopherWard.ca, which is Canada, <laughs> not California. Uh -huh. uh, so, yeah, I mean, you can look me up. I'm there. If anybody Googles you, you are a very famous watch, a timepiece. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, I'm a timepiece. <laughs> Oh, well, there's, there's worse things, right, than being a timepiece? I guess so. Well, um, that's all I have. I want to wow. thank you so much for being on the show. This was great. It was and my pleasure. I remember you from... Thank you for the, t for the time that you spent, you know, doing research and, um, you know, really thinking about the, the direction of the interview. They were great questions, John. I really appreciate it. Oh, great. Thank you very much. See you next time. All right. Thank you.